This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 50 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast. And on the phone, 10-hour time difference. I uh, kind of screwed up a little bit. I thought it was a nine-hour time difference. But uh, luckily, Phil White, assistant professor of history and Arctic and Northern Studies at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks, made the time to uh, call me back and uh, have him on the phone line right now to talk about Alaska. thought that uh, it would be great to talk to you, not just about the history fascinating history that it is, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that as well, but also about some of these contemporary uh, oil and uh, gas exploration projects in uh, Alaska, some of the geopolitics surrounding that, and other related issues, because this really ties into so many things about Alaska. And Alaska, of course, is what makes the United States an Arctic country, so very, uh, very important for the uh, presence and the projection of American interest in the Arctic. So thanks very much, Phil, for, for joining us here on the podcast tonight. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Eric, and uh, happy to happy to dive into um, all of these fascinating issues. Great. So, as I mentioned, I mean, the United States is an Arctic country specifically because of Alaska. The, the 49th state joined the United States in uh, 1959, I believe. But how important is the oil and gas industry for the uh, local economy, the politics, the, the, the social aspects? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think one that is often misunderstood. Right. So um, there is this perception that, uh, you know, Alaska is an oil state and oil is, uh, you know, the singular kind of contributor or driver of the economy up here. And, and historically, um, that really has been the case uh, since the 1970s. Right. Since the discovery of Prudhoe Bay in 1968, since the construction of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline uh, in 1977, since it came online and started pumping oil. Um, and that was a major sea change from the era before where Alaska was really known as a military outpost, right? A kind of defense frontier in the early Cold War. Uh, there was this, this seamless transition from the Second World War uh, into the Cold War for Alaska because of the recognition of its, you know, its, its outstanding uh, geopolitical uh, position. Um, and so, you know, Alaska was known as a military state. And then in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, Alaska really became an oil state. And, you know, there's a stat that is often thrown about, and sometimes you still hear it put out there, even though it's no longer true, which is that, you know, oil is basically funding 80 or 90 percent of the Alaskan economy. Um, but what's happened is, I would argue, there is a fundamental disconnect between the public perception that Alaska is an oil state versus the economic reality. And, you know, this, uh, this idea that oil is funding 80 or 90 percent of the state government is no longer true. And it actually hasn't been true for quite some time. Um, and it's what's happened are a few different things. So one is Alaska is just pumping way less crude oil today than we were uh, historically. So at its peak, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System moved uh, just over 2 million barrels of oil per day in 1988. Actually, just before the Exxon Valdez uh, oil spill happened was kind of when Alaska was, uh, you know, pumping the most oil. Um, we have declined almost every single year since then. And now the state of Alaska is hovering uh, right around 500,000 barrels per day. Um, so one is we're just, you know, we're moving a quarter of the oil that we moved uh, before. The second thing is there have been major changes in Alaska's oil taxes. Uh, specifically in 2014, we passed a piece of legislation called Senate Bill 21, um, and that reduced the amount that the state of Alaska has gotten from oil. So we're pumping less oil, we're getting less for our oil, arguably, than we've ever gotten before as a state. Um, and then, you know, the third thing that has really changed this equation is that Alaska did something really smart uh, back in the 1970s when it came to its oil wealth. Alaska actually had a Republican environmentalist governor. I know that's a very strange phrase these days, but we had a Republican environmentalist governor back in the 1970s by the name of Jay Hammond. And he was a fiscal conservative and he wanted to transform Alaska's non-renewable resource wealth into renewable 
resource wealth. So he was uh, one of the driving influences behind the creation of the Alaska Permanent Fund, where we have saved, it's been about 10% of all of our oil wealth in a sovereign wealth fund that we call the Alaska Permanent Fund. And um, that fund has grown quite large, uh, not nearly as successful as Norway. Norway actually learned from Alaska uh, on how to do this right. And Alaska learned from Alberta. Uh, Alaska learned what not to do from Alberta, actually, in the 1960s. Um, so because we've a been able to save all of this money, it's I don't know, something like $80 billion these days, right? The, the value fluctuates. Um those funds, the, the earnings from that permanent fund actually now funds a large percentage of our state's, um, uh, state's operating budget. So, you know, these three big things, we're pumping way less oil than we ever did before. We're earning less for oil, but now we actually have a significant new stream of revenue flowing into the government. And this has made our oil uh, kind of ironically, right, because that the, the, the permanent fund was originally seeded with oil wealth, but now it is, you know, it's invested all around the world. The earnings from that is coming from real estate in Manhattan and tech companies in Tokyo, right? Um, but now in some sense, we are, um, we're less of an oil state than we've been uh, since the 1970s. But the irony is that most Alaskans don't realize that, right? There's still this widespread perception um, that uh, Alaska relies on oil, uh, the only way to bring more money in for the state is to drill more oil, right? And you even hear this amongst people like uh, our new Democratic uh, representative, Mary Peltola. Um, and, you know, she gave that stat, right? Alaska relies 80 percent, uh, you know, 80% of our unrestricted general funds comes from oil revenues. Um, and unfortunately, that's incorrect. So this disconnect between social perception and economic reality leads to this skewed situation where people believe as though their um, economic fortunes are, are um, you know, require more oil drilling, but that's really not what we're seeing on the ground here. Really fascinating. A lot of different directions to go there. Um, we'll cover a lot of the questions I have to follow up that, uh, Phil. But uh, let's start with why the Alaskan oil output has gone down by 75% over the past 30, 35 years or so. Is that because of some sort of depletion in the reserves or just uh, environmental regulations? Sure. So it, it's a number of factors that I would kind of put as all of the above uh, based on what you mentioned. So just like all oil fields, right, there's a natural geologic decline. We're talking about a non-renewable resource here, right? So you can't, you can't pump forever. Um, and, you know, when Prudhoe Bay was discovered, they originally estimated it was going to be between five and 10 billion barrels of oil. And they ended up finding a lot more oil uh, than that, uh, not only uh, in the Prudhoe Bay field, right? Today, we've pumped 13 billion barrels just from Prudhoe Bay alone, but also from surrounding oil fields, oil fields like Kuparik, which is the second largest field up there, uh, or Alpine. Um, and so uh, to date, we, uh, the United States, Alaska, has pumped over 18 billion barrels of oil from the North Slope oil fields. Um, the technology has gotten better. It's, it's enabled them to pull more oil than we thought was possible uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Um, but the other thing that happened is once the pipeline was constructed, right, which was no small feat that I'm happy to talk more about, that changed the economics of oil and gas production on the North Slope, right? Um, this was one of the, one of the most remote regions uh, in the world before this. And suddenly, it was more economic to drill for oil and gas because you had a route to market, right? And uh, it's not surprising that the oil fields that were actually closest to the pipeline infrastructure, those had the best economics, right? Uh, because transportation is expensive up there. And transportation is really the key to accessing uh, Arctic resources or resources in remote locations. And so ever since the decision uh, you know, to construct the pipeline and ever since the pipeline was constructed, there has been this, uh, this push by the oil industry, by multinational oil companies, by the state of Alaska, and at various times by the US federal government to develop more oil resources on the North Slope. Um, one publication I read called this Prudomania. I kind of love that term. And it was the search for another supergiant, right? Prudhoe Bay was uh, you know, a phenomenal uh, you know, cash day 
for the um, for the companies behind it once they once they developed it and for the state of Alaska. And so in the early years, um, the push was actually into Arctic offshore. So in the early 1980s, you had these companies going into the Beaufort Sea, uh, relatively shallow waters off the north slope of Alaska, and um, drilling these really, really expensive uh, wells. There was one, I think it was in 1981 or 1982, the Mukluk well. And at the time, it was the most expensive dry hole in history. So they did not, uh, it, there used to be a lot of oil there, but they think that it, it migrated somewhere else. So um, they did not find the reserves that they were looking for uh, in Arctic offshore. And then they pivoted again. And they tried to go into the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So after the passage of what's called the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act of 1980, uh, ANILCA, this was this major conservation victory that, you know, um, doubled and tripled the amount of wilderness in the United States, most of it being here in Alaska. But one provision of this was that um, it permitted there to be exploration uh, in the 1002 area of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And if Congress voted, there could be development in this. So it was in the 1980s that the fight over the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge really heated up, right? Uh, and there's a lot that we can talk about that with uh, today, because for the first time in history after the 2017 uh, Tax and Jobs Act under the Trump administration, the um, you know, for the first time in history, that the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is is in theory open to development, right? Open to leasing, and there was a lease sale that was held on, uh, ironically of all of all times, January sixth. Um, you know, when that when the insurrection was happening in Washington, and that lease sale was almost a total bust. Uh, and so it's it's interesting, right? There are these places on the north slope of Alaska that are adjacent to Prudhoe Bay, where there's been decades of fights. And, uh, you know, a desire to open them up. And then some of these uh, places, once they are opened, because of longstanding opposition by environmentalists, conservation groups, climate activists, uh, certain indigenous groups up there, um, because of the politics around this, uh, you know, those oil developments have really not played out. Um, whereas, ironically, we have other areas like the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska. This is the region just to the west of Prudhoe Bay. And this is where uh, the, the famous Willow Project is held. And ironically, uh, you know, this is an area where historically, uh, going back into the 70s, the oil industry didn't think there was actually that much oil to be found. And the federal government did uh, some some exploration and some studies there. Uh, but ironically, today, this is where the vast majority of new oil development is happening on the West Slope. There is this spider web sprawl of expansion of infrastructure that's happening on the Western side. So there's a number of different factors that have led to the decline over the years. Um, State of Alaska projections actually show that uh, production will hold steady and potentially even increase in, in the next decade or two to come. And so this is fascinating because there's so many conversations happening about decarbonization, about where these investment dollars are growing. But the state of Alaska and the oil companies that remain active on the North Slope, uh, namely uh, ConocoPhillips, um, uh, Hillcorp Alaska, and to a lesser extent, Exxon, you know, these entities remain committed to uh, pumping as much oil as they can from the North Slope and uh, earning as much money as they can. Much of this depends upon also the uh, the the market price of oil at any given time, and then there's the uh, the reputational risk factor. It seems like some companies, some uh, oil majors, made pretty bold statements about actually leaving Alaska. But it seems like also that some of them are starting to tentatively come back. Like from I read that Shell is starting to, to talk about once again uh, doing oil exploration. There was, it's been 10 years since the Kulik oil rig right. uh, crash. What What is the current state? Is there now a renewed interest? I mean, this Willow project seems it's gotten quite a bit of attention lately. And uh, is there is there others that are starting to sort of, now that the oil price, it's gone down a little bit, I guess, recently, but it's been relatively high the last two years since maybe this January 6th failed uh, auction. Is there, is there in the last year or two, has there been an increase in interest in uh, Alaskan oil again? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, and the environment, the kind of landscape that we see today is, is really mixed. It's really muddled. And, you know, I'll throw in a few different factors to, to, to talk about it here. Um, 
you know, obviously high oil prices boost investment. Um, and, you know, typically you hear of Alaska talked about as a, as a higher priced environment, right? It costs more to operate up here. And um, what I would say is, you know, that's, uh, there's, there's two different things going on. One is that that's absolutely true, right? Especially as the permafrost is thawing, right? Under this Willow project, they're having to, to install chillers to artificially cool <laughs> these drilling pads because it's getting so hot in the Arctic these days, right? The season for ice roads is shrinking, right? The, the winter is the primary time when you move heavy, um, you know, heavy equipment, when you transport your drill rigs on the North Slope. So climate change is increasing the cost. It's increasing uncertainty. At the same time, we have an existing proven oil transportation system, the Trans-Alaska Oil Pipeline. And, um, Oil taxes in Alaska are quite low. They are very globally competitive. So when people talk about Alaska as a high uh, cost environment, it is somewhat true, but there is also um, no shortage of factors that leads Alaska to be quite competitive. Um, so what we see here is a really uh, mixed environment, right? You have some companies like ConocoPhillips that are... Um, you could say they're betting the future of the company on Alaska, right? Obviously, Conoco is a global company, but if you look at their portfolio and you look at their investments, they are investing a significant chunk of money in Alaska, and they're also investing in this kind of higher-risk frontier energy project, the Willow project, that, um, you know, depending, there's, there's different numbers that you've seen, but I've seen numbers that, you know, Conoco's break-even oil price for something like Willow is in, uh, you know, uh, the mid $50 range, uh, $50 uh, per uh, barrel of oil. And so, you know, this leads to some really interesting questions about the future of oil, um, because, it, you know, Thinking about global decarbonization, thinking about the managed decline of oil production, in theory, the last oil of barrel that we pump, um, not, not that there's going to be ever like the last, but some of the last barrels of oil that we pump, um, in theory, should come from the lowest cost environment. Well, Conoco's bet on something like Willow, Conoco's, uh, you know, if you read into those numbers, they're basically making a bet to the tune of billions of dollars that the world is not on track for a decarbonized uh, global environment by 2050, that the world will not meet uh, the Paris Climate Accords or some of these other uh, you know, climate commitments that are being made. So that's one company, right? That's, uh, that's uh, ConocoPhillips. Then we have another company like Hillcorp Alaska, and they're kind of, uh, they're in the middle of this situation. And um, they, Hillcorp is fascinating because on one hand, they're, they're a fairly small company compared to these multinational oil majors. Uh, they're about 3% the size of BP. Um, Hillcorp bought all of BP's Alaska assets in uh, 2019, 2019-2020. Um, and what's so fascinating about this is that um, BP left the state of Alaska, right? BP, the, what I would argue is historically the most important energy company in Alaska. They owned... Um, the dominant stake of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System. They were the main financier of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System. Uh, they, are the, uh, they were the operator of Prudhoe Bay, our most important oil field. Um, you know, they, they operated in the state since the 1950s, and BP has exited the state of Alaska, right? They no longer have any operations here. So BP really shows you the other end of the spectrum, the companies that are getting out of Alaska and saying, we don't see a robust future here. We see more risk than reward. We see our investors' capital being uh, spent uh, more wisely and earning higher returns elsewhere in the world. Um, but in their wake come in these smaller companies like Hillcorp. Right. Uh, Hillcorp certainly sees plenty of money to be made in Alaska. Uh, their business model is based on acquiring older infrastructure and really uh, getting as much money out of it as possible. Uh, they have a, what's called an acquire and exploit strategy. So uh, the Alaska oil patch is still attracting investment. There is a different kind of investment uh, investor going on here. Right. We have smaller oil companies. Uh, I would argue more risky oil companies. Right, oil companies that might not have the capital to clean up something like an Exxon Valdez, 
Um, so the state of Alaska is certainly in a new investment environment these days. It's very much a mixed bag. Money is still being spent on the, on the North Slope. There's still firms that see a lot of money to be made in oil development. Um, but make no mistake, uh, Alaska is a mature oil province. And some of the legacy oil and gas majors are, um, if they have not already exited, they are planning their exit. I would not be surprised if, if ExxonMobil is the next company to leave Alaska. Really, despite the fact that uh, there is new new uh, explorations going on, new uh, exploitations as well, like the Willow Project. So you think that the general trend then is that the majors are one by one pulling out in some of these more fly-by-night or more um, risk-taking uh, smaller companies are are going to be sweeping in and sort of taking over these these legacy infrastructures? Yeah, I think that's the trend, right? And it's a trend with asterisks because obviously we have a company like ConocoPhillips, big multi uh, multinational company, and they're making you know this big six billion dollar bet on a willow. So they're here for the long run, right? I don't expect Conoco to go anywhere. Um, but a company like Exxon hasn't made a sizable um, you know discovery or investment in the state. In uh, it's probably historically inaccurate to say decades, but certainly a long time, certainly in years. And that was kind of the situation that BP was in, right? BP shut down their exploration department uh, sometime in the 2000s. So they had really just been getting all of the cash that they could out of the legacy oil fields. Um, and they were in this kind of coast mode. Right. And I would argue Exxon's probably in a similar position. But I think a lot of these, you know, I, I don't think this is going to happen tomorrow. Um, and, and that's mostly because Alaska is still a profitable environment for these companies. Right. Um, but the general trend that we're seeing is um, I think the multinationals. And we've got to put we've all, we've also got to put an asterisk on this, right? Because European multinationals, the BPs, the Shells, the Ennies, right? They uh, have a very different culture. They have a very different perception of risk than the American multinationals, right? ConocoPhillips, Exxon, um, uh, the Chevrons of the world. So I think actually what we're seeing on the North Slope of Alaska is evidence of that split, right? BPs pulling out, um, but Conoco's investing more money. Right. It's actually really a, a case book, uh, a textbook example of that. So um, it, the future, of course, remains uh, quite, uh, quite unwritten, quite murky as a, as a historian. You know, we always joke that it's quite uh, uh, unprofitable to try to be a prophet. So I'm not going to not going to hazard any guesses. But what I would say is, uh, you know, over the past couple decades, we've seen a trend to where these smaller companies are being more aggressive with Alaskan oil development. Um, these smaller companies have, uh, by and large, been the ones responsible for most of the, the oil discoveries uh, over the past 20 years. And uh, the evidence of Hillcorp shows that these smaller companies um, have a greater appetite for risk and that they are really dominating Alaska right now. So uh, a lot of the coverage about Alaska is about ConocoPhillips, it's about the Willow Project, but the largest oil and gas producer in Alaska isn't ConocoPhillips, it's Hillcorp, right? Uh, and not only do they have uh, this, uh, you know, the, the largest share of production, they actually have a monopoly over the state's uh, natural gas production in the Cook Inlet out by Anchorage. Uh, the state has permitted them to get a monopoly. Um, and so Alaska, in a lot of ways, is in a quite a precarious position. Um, and I worry that the, if there's not effective, more effective state control over some of these companies, um, we are going to see both uh, higher energy costs for Alaskans. And I think there's going to be uh, the greater likelihood of another major uh, oil spill or environmental disaster like the Exxon Valdez. Let's talk a bit about then the um, the importance of the the politics of this the the state level politics in Alaska, but also the the uh, national the federal level of politics uh, from one presidential administration to another. The Trump administration allowed for uh, exploration, I guess, in uh, Anwar and the uh, the uh, Alaska National Wildlife Refuge in 2017. I think you mentioned, uh, but it was actually the Biden administration that I guess gave final approval for the Willow Project. So is there? Is there really much change from one presidential administration to the next when it comes to opening and closing doors to oil and gas exploration in Alaska? And um, 
say maybe something also about the interplay between state-level politics in Alaska and the federal level. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think this is another one of these issues where it is, there is this, this gap between perception and reality, right? And so perception is, you know, you might look at the Trump administration versus the Biden administration and, you know, uh, people say, oh, this is, um, you know, Trump was all hot to trot because of things like drilling the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, whereas Biden came in and he said, you know, no no more drilling on federal lands. And obviously there's been a, um, you know, a, a, a departure when it comes to things like the Willow Project or the recent approval of the Alaska uh, LNG pipeline project. Um and we often see this perception in political rhetoric, right? So if you take the rhetoric of uh, Alaska senators, uh, Lisa Murkowski, or more especially um, uh, uh, Sullivan, Dan Sullivan, you know, uh, Senator Sullivan loves to talk about how the Biden administration is crushing Alaska's energy and business prospects. And if only that, you know, we could open up investment, we'd see all these dollars flow. But when we look at the reality closer to the ground, we see a different situation, right? Um, so there's no doubt that uh, Lisa Murkowski was absolutely indispensable in terms of convincing uh, President Trump and the Trump administration to put um, oil leasing in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge as part of the Tax and Jobs Act, right? This had been something that uh, Senator Murkowski and her father before her had have wanted for generations, um, you know, going back to those those fights around the 1980s. So, um, and then that was something that, that, that Trump kind of uh, championed that that he was solely responsible for like you know not even reagan could get this done but trump got it done but the 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 genesis of the of that was really lisa murkowski um so you know these these details matter the other thing i would say about the biden administration in terms of fossil fuel development in uh in alaska and in in the arctic you know the the headline that we usually see about this is that you know biden has um betrayed his promises that he's opening up all of this new land for leasing um and that uh you know you could argue he's he's in line with the trump administration in, in terms of this type of stuff i think the reality on the ground shows that um, what happened is the leases for the Willow Project actually go back to the 1990s. <laughs> they were originally approved not by Biden, but by President Clinton, right? And so the, the decision that the Biden administration had was not around whether or not to let ConocoPhillips lease those parcels. Conoco was already leasing those parcels. The decision was around whether or not basically to give permission to this project. And if the Biden administration had denied it, they would very likely have been defeated in court because um, the, the bigger, you know, the the deeper thing to understand here is behind all of these presidential administrations, um, we have of a uh, we have a system in the United States that over the past century has encouraged uh, companies to explore for oil and gas. And what that means is you have uh, generous tax subsidies uh, and you have these leasing structures. So presidents come and go, but those leases remain. And this actually is one of the, the most challenging things that we need to reform as a country as we're talking about decarbonization, because the political economy of this industry right now uh, really is encouraging uh, drilling. And so the decision that the Biden administration made, you know, I think you can you can argue it was a, um, you know, that Biden here looks like he's. Uh, He's going back on his promise and he's encouraging more oil and gas development. I think it's significantly more nuanced. Um, but, uh, you know, behind the scenes here, we have a kind of, uh, pardon the pun, but, a, you know, a well-oiled um, uh, oil and gas uh, leasing uh, and, uh, and development uh, system that has long wanted to pull more oil and gas out of the ground. Um, on the state level part of this, the state versus federal government, there's a lot that we can say there. One thing that I'll say is uh, when it comes to the state of Alaska, there was a there was a vote by the legislature and it was unanimous. Every single Alaskan congressperson and senator uh, voted in favor of that Willow project. 
So that shows you the perceptions of oil and gas on the ground. Um, but again, going back to my other point that there's this gulf between perceptions and reality, again, there, you know, there's this idea, oh, if we develop this Willow oil and gas project, it's going to bring all of this money to Alaska. This is how we sustain ourselves. But when you look at the facts on the ground, Willow is one of the worst and most uneconomic oil projects in Alaska history. I mean, it is absolutely laughable. And the reason for that is because Willow is not on state land like Prudhoe Bay was. So uh, Prudhoe Bay, the state of Alaska, is getting a 12.5% royalty. They're getting all these production taxes from it. Willow is on federal land. It's part of the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska. So the state is not getting the same type of royalties for that. And there's a leasing agreement that goes back into the 1990s that actually says that most of the benefits from drilling in Willow actually have to go to local communities. So it's interesting. The, uh, the villages on the North Slope of Alaska in the North Slope Borough, it's actually the largest municipality in the United States, right? This is a city that's basically the size of uh, Indiana, right? Just this massive, uh, massive area. They are going to get significant benefits from the Willow Project, but the state of Alaska is not. And in fact, we are going to lose money as a state over the next decade um, because of the way that the oil and gas uh, taxes are set up. Basically, companies like uh, ConocoPhillips, who are investing in Willow, they can write off their expenses from uh, projects on state lands like Kuparik and Prudhoe Bay over the next decade. And it's only going to be you know, a decade out that the state of Alaska is going to see a single dollar in revenue or profit from the Willow development. Um, so, you know, this is another one of these areas where I think there is not widespread public uh, understanding of the actual economics of these projects and that these projects are not bringing as much economic benefit to Alaskans as, as people perceive uh, them to. Is that community that, that will benefit from the uh, Willow project, is that an indigenous community or is it other Alaskans there? Yeah, so I mean, this is again something that's 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 complicated and, and often poorly understood in the national media. But on the North Slope of Alaska, we have a series of villages that make up uh, villages and cities that make up the North Slope Borough. Um, so uh, the largest one of these, historically known as Barrow, today known as Utiavik, um, uh, and then we have you know communities like uh, Wainwright and New Wixit and Kaktovik um, and Anaktuvik Pass. So the these are the communities that are going to benefit from the project. However, not every uh, one of those communities is uh, fully in support of this project. Most famously, Newixit uh, is a village on the North Slope of Alaska that is adjacent to the oil fields. This was an indigenous community that was reconstituted in 1970 um, after the oil field started to be built, but this was this community was um, dozens of miles away. So when they originally built the community, you couldn't see any oil fields, you know, nothing like that. Over time, because of the kind of spiderweb sprawl, as I call it, of the oil fields, they now encircle Newixit. So Newixit's mayor. Um, Rosemary, she was absolutely opposed to this development, uh, the, the Willow Project. There's a lot of other residents there who fear uh, the health impacts from all the natural gas flaring uh, and the, you know, the other release of chemicals, things like well blowouts, uh, which have happened recently on the North Slope, uh, potentially related to permafrost thaw although there's uh, ongoing investigations about that. So, you know, the situation is really mixed on the ground. Uh, it's not as though all of these communities favor oil development and communities like New Wixit that are really at the heart of this are, are quite opposed to things like the Willow Project. Now, how about the uh, the overall energy security perspective on this? I mean, there's there's the economics that that of course is the uh, the, the dominant consideration for for private companies and such, and uh, states. I guess the state interests are also uh, perhaps uh, slightly different. But from a national U.S. perspective, energy security is something that certainly a, a presidential administration has to take into account. How strong does that factor into these decisions when it comes to uh, oil leases in Alaska? Sure. Great, great question. Um, and again, this is one of the things that historically has driven so much of oil development in Alaska, right? If we want to understand why the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System was, was ultimately built, we have to understand American energy security, right? And um, what we see today is it's really a mixed situation. And, and, and again, there's a lot of misunderstanding there. Um, 
and a lot of this has to do with perception, right? So uh, there is this, um, what's, what's the best way to, to, to frame this? A barrel of oil in the ground um, is not worth the same in Alaska as it is in Texas, right? Um, where oil is found is really important because we have created energy systems based on geography, right? Um, and so people talk about, well, um, we need the Willow Project because we need energy security for America. And there's certainly some truth to that, right? If you develop Willow, you're going to have more American oil flowing down the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System um, uh, that is, in theory, able to be used, um, but it could also be exported, right? Uh, historically, when we we're talking about energy security, it was usually about making sure the United States had enough petroleum. We are in a very different situation today than we were in the 1970s. Because of the fracking revolution, um, the United States uh, <laughs> is now the world's largest producer of oil, right? And um, one of the world's largest exporters of natural gas. So what we're doing with this oil now is, you know, it kind of goes back to what, to what the Trump administration called American energy dominance. It's not just about making sure the United States has enough. It's about making sure that we have surpluses of oil and gas that can be exported um, to our allies abroad. And certainly we saw this with the, with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and the need for Europe to um, replace Russian gas. We saw an entire flotilla of American LNG tankers going across the North Atlantic, supplying Europe. There was one point where um, we were exporting more natural gas to Europe than we were consuming as a country, right? Uh, it's a really mind-boggling situation that, that most people would have said was totally uh, fantastical, uh, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. Um, and so what I would say about the Willow Project is, um, yes, I think national security is a driving uh, force behind it, but not because the oil that is produced from Willow is going to come on quickly and not because it's necessarily going to go to the most uh, urgently need places. Um, most uh, of, uh, if not all, of Alaska's 500,000 barrels that is moved um, down the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System, it gets put on tankers, and it goes to the American West Coast, right? It goes to Washington, it goes to Oregon, it goes to California. Um, ironically, these are some of the greenest states in the United States and those that are decarbonizing the fastest, right? Um, so the notion that, you know, Washington State desperately needs Alaska Petroleum um, tomorrow just it, it doesn't add up, right? And it doesn't add up when you also look at, you know, legacy oil and gas development in places like California, uh, the surplus of, of Canadian crude coming out of the oil sands. Um, and Willow is going to take a long time to bring online, right? Uh, we're talking about Willow coming online here, you know, close to 2030. Um, so it's hard to know the exact uh, energy security situation of the United States at that time. But what is clearly true is that perceptions of energy security, perceptions of energy scarcity, energy dominance have driven this discussion. And the Biden administration made a calculation, again, going back to the, the point that they did not necessarily approve these leases. Um, they made a calculation that they probably weren't going to be able to win this in court and that it was bad politics to be denying a major fossil fuel project at the same time they were telling the American oil and gas industry, especially in places like West Texas, which is really the, 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 um, uh, the center of gravity of the American oil industry these days. Um, you know, the Biden administration was telling these folks, hey, we need more oil and gas because of the war in Ukraine and American energy security. So it felt like a disconnect for the administration to say no to one project in Alaska while pushing uh, the industry to drill more in places like Texas. And not to mention high uh, gasoline prices in the United States as well. I'm sure that also had some uh, some effect as well. It was really fascinating exactly. stuff, Phil. And um, you mentioned earlier in the uh, in the discussion about uh, this uh, sovereign wealth fund that Alaska has and this sort of this far-sighted uh, governor back uh, back in the 1970s. And it, it sounds like, and, and you compared it to the, the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund, so it sounds a little bit... Um, I don't know, unexpected that a, that a state would have a sovereign fund. And this idea of of sovereignty, is that an issue between the state of Alaska and the federal U.S. government? The fact that Alaska maybe thinks it should have more sovereignty, more local decision-making 
power over its natural resources, and that Washington should butt out maybe and and not interfere with these uh, these local decisions. Is that like an ongoing tension between the federal level and the state level in Alaska? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're um, you're prescient to pick up on that issue, and, and absolutely, this is an issue that goes back hundreds of years, back before Alaska was even a state. Um, and so the tension, but, uh, you know, this, this, this question around federalism, right? What rights does the state of Alaska have versus what rights and responsibilities does the federal government have? Um, this goes back, I mean, I think the, the, the easiest starting place for this is the Klondike Gold Rush of 1898. We have this massive influx of um, of uh, Euro Americans coming up from the lower 48, um, you know, mining all over Alaska. The government was very concerned about the flow of all these people into this kind of what they what they perceived as as virgin or empty territory. Of course, it wasn't. Um, it had been and, and continued to be inhabited for uh, by by indigenous peoples for time immemorial. Um, but what happened uh, during the gold rush is um, the settlers would come in and constantly bemoan that the federal government wasn't spending more money to improve a wagon trail or to build a railroad, right? And this re- really reached a kind of fever pitch during the progressive era in Alaska. And there's this wonderful book by Thomas Altman called The Progressive Era in Alaska uh, that, I, that I teach in my Alaska history course. And it gets into all the nitty gritty here. And, and um, this was also the age when we, had, uh, when we had the robber barons, right? We had the Guggenheims and the Morgans. And they came into Alaska and they built a railroad between Cordova and Kennecott. Um, this is down in kind of the south central part of the state near Prince William Sound, and they developed the largest copper mine in the world. Uh, this was at a time when the United States and the world were electrifying. We needed vast amounts of copper. Um, but progressives uh, in Alaska, uh, both both the Alaska territorial government, people like James Wickersham, um, and at the national level, uh, people like Woodrow Wilson, they perceived these uh, these monopolists as a uh, a direct threat to the nation and to democracy. So there was this push to invest more money in Alaska. And ultimately, uh, this is what happened. This is how we got the Alaska Railroad, right? Originally, what was called the Government Railroad when it was approved in 1914. And uh, the Alaska Railroad was built between Seward down on the coast at Tidewater and Fairbanks. Um, And so there were all of these these fights and um, these feelings at the time that the federal government wasn't investing enough in Alaska and Alaska could earn so much more uh, if the federal government just invested more. There was also this belief, uh, not uh, unfairly either, that the federal government was locking up the state's best resources. And this goes back to um, Theodore Roosevelt and the creation of large national forests in Alaska. We had the creation of the Tongass National Forest, um, uh, going back to the turn of the century, uh, as well as the Chugach National Forest down in south central Alaska. And um, this reached ahead when uh, Theodore Roosevelt, um, in, a, in a very famous incident called the Pinchot-Ballinger Affair, which I won't go into all the details, but basically the federal government um, halted all mineral leasing in Alaska. There was coal development happening at a place called Katala, and the federal government put a pause on this, and Alaskans were outraged, right? They said, um, they actually held the, uh, what was famously called the Cordova Coal Party, where they dumped Canadian coal into the ocean, right? A kind of uh, a replay of, of the Boston Tea Party, right? And the whole idea was that the federal government, because of their um, heavy-handed influence with conservation was stifling Alaskan development. So these ideas go back a century or longer and have only risen uh, in tension uh, over the past hundred years. So uh, certainly, the debate around the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System in the late 1960s and early 1970s, these ideas were reaching a fever pitch because the federal government, uh, due to court challenges, um, you know, paused that pipeline development for a series of years. Um, we had major fights around this with the passage of what I mentioned before, the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act of 1980, when uh, environmentalists were trying to preserve the, the most pristine parts of Alaska, but developers still wanted access to them, right? They wanted to be able to um, 
uh, drill for oil in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. They wanted to be able to mine copper in the Ambler Mining District. And so they, they got this, uh, this provision put into that law that enabled them to build a road through gates of the Arctic National Park, what is today a roadless national park, but may not always remain a roadless national park. So um, these ideas around federalism uh, and the tension between the, the state government and the federal government remain alive and well. And the single best uh, authority on this is Alaska historian Steve Haycox. He's written a wonderful book called Battleground Alaska that goes into all of the details of this. Um, but what I would say is today, we're in a really ironic situation. So we have state leadership, whether that's Governor Mike Dunleavy, uh, whether that's um, Senator Dan Sullivan, who at every opportunity are talking about how the federal government is um, suppressing uh, the opportunity for natural resource development in Alaska, that the federal government is, uh, you know, has this heavy hand. And yet, the economic reality is that the federal government, um, both historically and today, uh, remains um, one of the most important economic engines in the state. If you look around the state, half of the infrastructure was built by the federal government, uh, often before Alaska became a state, right? Look at the Alaska Highway. Um, look at uh, um, so many of the infrastructures we have up here, right? Before the Trans-Alaskan Pipeline System was built, we had two hydrocarbon systems up here that were built by the military during World War II and the Cold War. So the federal government very much laid the foundation for a lot of the oil and gas wealth that the state experiences today. And a lot of the employment in Alaska today actually um, comes from the federal government or federal contracts, right? Uh, we have a large presence of the Park Service up here, the Fish and Wildlife Service. And so that we have this really kind of bizarre situation, again, this contrast between perception and reality, where politicians love to talk about an overbearing federal government or that the federal government hasn't done anything for Alaska, while the reality is that the federal government continues to um, provide funding at an extraordinary level uh, to the people of Alaska to the extent that, depending on the year that you look at, Alaska is one of, if not the most subsidized state on a per capita basis, right? There's more federal dollars flowing to each Alaskan citizen than there is in almost any other state. Um, and, you know, it's a kind of it's, it's a bizarre paradox, but one that is also present throughout the American West. So uh, the historian uh, Richard White uh, has this great quote, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but he was talking about the residents of, I think it was Utah or one of those other states, and he was talking um, about you know folks in the American West, and I would absolutely put Alaska in this category, being very adept practitioners at scolding the federal government with one hand while having their other hand out to receive handouts from the federal government. Um, and I think there's a lot of Alaskans who would uh, react very forcefully to that characterization. But I, as a historian, I think that's that's absolutely been the economic reality of Alaska. And a big part of the federal presence in Alaska for many decades now, of course, has been the, the military presence. You mentioned before that it was uh, seen as a, a defense frontier back during the Cold War and Today, I guess uh, there's more tension in the world vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Russia, even China. Of course, this uh, this balloon incident it started by by floating over Alaska and so mm -hmm. forth. Can you perhaps talk a bit about the, the 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 military presence and maybe if there's any connection to the to the to the natural resources of Alaska, to the to the oil and gas, and, and maybe some of the minerals that I guess were seen as important uh, foundations for for the United States being able to to have a, a, a you know, a strong military, and uh, maybe some of the the, the power projection and uh, defensive aspects of of the uh, military presence uh, in uh, in Alaska historically, but also today. Certainly. Uh, well, we could probably have an entire uh, podcast discussion just on this one very rich question. So let me just maybe tease a few things out of it, uh, but but we can we can talk more about some of these details if you want. So historically. Um, you know, maybe I'll start by saying this. Um, I am an environmental historian by training, right? I really look at the, the interaction of, of people and the environment. Um, but coming to Alaska, 
really studying Alaska, um, I've kind of had to become a military historian, um, or I've had to understand the military. And the reason why is because the U.S. military is the single most important institution in Alaska's history, right? And it's, it's quite easy to say that because just looking, you know, looking back uh, in Alaska's history, the military has really dominated this state. Um, and I, and I think it's not, uh, it is not an exaggeration to say that, um, between the 1940s and arguably all the way to the present, but certainly from the 1940s through the 1960s or seventies, um, Alaska has been, and arguably remains a garrison state. Right. And I don't use that as a pejorative term, but I but I use that in the literal sense of the term. I think it was Harold Laswell, the sociologist who came up with this term in the 1950s. And the way that he defines that is a society where um, the most powerful members of society are those who are the specialists on violence. Right. And I think we're we're in that situation uh, with Alaska, arguably um, today because of of the economic, the political importance of Alaska today. Let me, let me just give you uh, a great example. This is, this is a contemporary example, and then we'll go back and talk about history. So if you look at the headlines, if you're, if you're uh, an Alaskan now, you might hear it on the radio or in the headlines. Um, our major highway here that connects Fairbanks to Anchorage, uh, Alaska's two biggest cities, our highway is getting shut down here in a couple days because of military operations. They are landing aircraft on our public highway system. In what other U.S. state, right, or even what other country would they shut down the most important highway in the state uh, in the middle of the day to permit a military operation to happen, right? Um, This is kind of, uh, you know, this is the kind of evidence that, that, that shows you the importance of the military for the state of Alaska. Um, historically, um, this relationship, uh, you know, it goes back to the gold rush, but it really, and, and, and by the way, Alaska was originally governed as an American uh, colony or American territory. Um, originally, uh, it, the Army and the Navy both had turns um, as the administrator of Alaska, right? So we kind of began as a military province, if you will, but it was really World War II that made the military dominate Alaska. Um, during the height of the war, there was 152,000 American service members uh, in Alaska, uh, something like six out of every 10 uh, jobs in Alaska traced its influence back to the military. Uh, as I mentioned before, seamless transition uh, from um, World War II into the Cold War for Alaska. We built major military bases here. Ielson Air Force Base, just outside of Fairbanks, um, constructed in the late 1940s, longest runway in North America at the time, right, to be able to host these uh, nuclear-armed bombers as, as uh, the, uh, the Cold War was heating up. Um, and uh, the, those bases have, you know, they've remained throughout the Cold War. There was a major dip in military spending, um, uh, with the fall of the Cold War. But now, as tensions have heated back up, um, Alaska is on the front lines of, uh, of this kind of new Cold War and the massive deployment of uh, new military hardware. So Alaska hosts more fifth-generation fighter aircraft than any other state in the United States, right? So this is both the F-22 and the F-35. Uh, here in Fairbanks, we've just seen... Um, uh, the, the introduction of the F-35 to our community. So I sit here in my office and I regularly get buzzed by fighter jets. Um, just sitting here on this conversation, actually, there's a big uh, um, Globemaster cargo plane that came right over the university campus. Uh, they regularly use the, uh, the, the Fairbanks International Airport to, to conduct um, exercises, uh, touch and goes. Um, and so this is... Um, it is, a, it is a geopolitical reality, but it's also an economic reality, right? And that's how most Alaskans see this. They see uh, the military members here as uh, bringing in crucial uh, external funding to the state. Um, and anywhere you go in Alaska, um, almost anywhere you go, you know, you can see this dynamic. I've been up hiking in the remote Arctic wilderness, and there's been A-10s flying above me. Right. Um, so 
happy to dive into to some of these themes more in terms of history, but where we're at today is, uh, is absolutely that the military remains um, one of the most potent um, social, political, and economic forces in Alaska. That's really fascinating. I mean, I'm just thinking in comparison to um, the Kola Peninsula in Russia, and you often hear of that as the uh, as this sort of this bastion, the sort of ICBM, uh, well, the the uh, the sub bases and such, and uh, the sort of the second strike capacity of, of Russia, and previously the the Soviet Union. Is is Alaska then? Is it just because it's the closest part of the United States to to Russia? You know, during the Cold War, and and, and of course still now, or is it uh, because the United States has power projection assets there that need to be defended? Uh, is it more of an offensive or defensive posture? You, would you say, or certainly both? But it, does it lean one way or the other? Uh, it's a it's a great question, and I think you know again there could be a whole book written just on that question that talks about change over time because obviously it ebbed and flowed with World War II and the Cold War. Um, you know, World War II, it, it began quite defensively against the Japanese after the invasion of Attu and Kiska. But then towards the end of the war, it was uh, quite offensive, right? Uh, one of the reasons that they built a, a few of these hydrocarbon pipelines up here during World War II is the perceived need to bring hydrocarbons to Alaska because Alaska was going to be the springboard for the invasion of Japan. Right, that was one of the uh, the the kind of uh, war plans that was on the table. Obviously, never executed. Um, in the 1950s, uh, uh, and maybe this quote actually comes from the 1960s when he was our state senator, Bob, uh, or our, our senator Bob Bartlett. He described Alaska both as as the shield protecting North America, but also. Um, uh, Alaska is having a sword behind the shield, ready to strike back. So it's it's always had this kind of this dual nature, right? This um, this early warning, right? This northern sentinel that could de- that that could detect and defend against attack, but also ready to project American power, both throughout the Arctic, but also throughout uh, throughout the Pacific, right? Um, and depending on, on the military officers you talk to up here, you know, you actually get different answers about what is, uh, you know, what is this American air power and this force projection for? Some folks will talk about the Arctic, but many more actually talk about the Pacific. Um, so Alaska is a key, uh, you know, um, as a very famous quote from the 1930s, uh, General Billy Mitchell, who's the father of the, the American Air Force, he said, uh, and he served up here, he actually helped build the, uh, uh, this very um, pioneering telegraph line all the way from Nome through Alaska to the lower 48 uh, at the turn of the century. So he had experience with Alaska. And in the 1930s, he said, with the rise of air power, Alaska is the most strategic location in the world. He said, he who owns, uh, who holds Alaska will hold the world. Uh, I think it's a it's a bit of an overstatement, but it's an um, They've they've got that quote uh, over there at Ielson Air Force Base outside of Fairbanks because uh, of uh, certainly there's a lot of significance to that quote. Has, so, um, yeah, go ahead. No, no, sorry, so Phil, continue, please. Yeah, no. So what I was going to say is it's not just the geographic proximity to Russia. You know, certainly that's important. Uh, you know, you can insert the joke here about uh, Sarah Palin seeing Russia from her home and all all that good stuff. Um, but it's that you know. In an era of climate change, right? We the, the, a new ocean is opening up uh, for the first time in human history in front of our eyes, and Alaska has a front seat view to that. So it's not just about air power; it's also about naval power, right? This is why there have been major appropriations, and they are planning on building a deep water port in Nome because right now the U.S. does not have force protection, whether it's for the Navy or for the Coast Guard, um, because we don't uh, we don't have a deep water port in the Arctic. Right. And that severely limits, um, you know, not just military activities, but search and rescue. And as we're seeing an uptick in uh, in economic activity through through the northern sea route or the northwest passage. So um, it's it's geographical proximity. It's this unique location that Alaska has both to the Arctic and to the Pacific. And it's the dynamics of climate change as uh, we're seeing both new resources and new threats uh, open up before our eyes. Has the uh, has the Chinese balloon incident has that sent any sort of shock waves through the the security community in Alaska? That is a great question and one that I don't feel um, 
not sure that I that I have the the knowledge or the expertise to answer that. I'm sure if you went down to uh, Fort Wainwright or Eielson, you know these uh, these bases outside Fairbanks here, and talked to some of the commanders, they would absolutely say yes, and they could give you examples. Um, all I've heard is rhetoric from our uh, state leaders and politicians. Uh, certainly, from people like Dan Sullivan, uh, you know the rhetoric has been quite heated, and uh, even Lisa Murkowski talking about kind of uh, going so far as to talk about the failures of of uh, you know the Biden administration and the military to you know um, detect and shoot down these balloons. Um, what I'll also say is there is a lot of saber rattling from Alaskan officials because they always want more defense appropriations, right? The political economy of this only flows one way, uh, which is to constantly be talking about the threat, playing up the threat, bring more dollars, bring more troops to Alaska, increase economic development. Um, what I would say too, and, and you know, this goes back to the um, the former question, is Alaska is very much on the front lines of concerns about nuclear proliferation uh, around ICBMs, um, uh, concerns about North Korea. Uh, we host, um, I think it's the nations only, but I might be mistaken about that. We have an entire base up here that is dedicated to um, these uh, missile interceptors. Right, this technology that's been very controversial. You know, we can go back to the Star Wars program of the 1980s under the Reagan administration, and and uh, you know, both concerns about that and um, some of the success of that program in terms of making the Soviets spend more money. Um, but uh, those those interceptors are here on the ground uh, at Fort Greeley, and so Alaska plays this kind of vital role uh, in continuing to defend not just Alaska, but really defending. Um, continental North America from um, uh, the perception and the reality of any kind of uh, intercontinental ballistic missile attack. If we look at the wider Arctic, I know you've done some some comparative work. So obviously you're 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 very much an expert on Alaska. Um, how would you compare the the role Alaska plays in? Obviously, Alaska is the U.S. Arctic. Uh, if you compare that to other countries in the role of their Arctic regions and their Arctic identity and their Arctic prioritization, let's say Russia, Norway, uh, maybe even northern Sweden, which uh, northern, I don't know if you've done any work on northern Sweden, but it, it also plays a very important role in uh, as, as a resource frontier. At least that's the way it's perceived by some in, in the, the southern parts of the country. If you just compare Alaska to other Arctic countries and, and regions inside of Arctic countries, uh, what would your conclusions be? Sure. Well, it's, it's a fascinating question. And, and again, we can, we can really dig into this. Um, you know, I think about a number of different areas, right? I think about, um, I think about cultural identity. I think about economics. I think about energy development, right? So when it comes to culture, um, Alaska is odd because obviously Alaska is the reason the United States is an Arctic power, but most Americans don't realize, they don't have this perception of America as an Arctic power. And that's very different from a country like Canada, right? Even though 90% of the Canadian population is within, you know, 100 miles of the border, American, uh, Canadians, uh, sorry, see themselves as a northern people, right? That's steeped in their culture, their cultural identity. Um, and I would say there's there's similar comparisons that you could draw to um, to Sweden or any of these other Nordic states where most of their populations are in the south, but they very much see themselves as northern peoples. Um, you could argue that for Russia as well. Um, and so Alaska is this odd situation uh, where there's there's quite a national disconnect in terms of uh, in terms of identity. Um, economics is fascinating because. There was a moment in time, certainly in the 1980s, uh, you know, when Alaska was um, contributing something like 25% of the nation's entire crude oil production, right? Alaska was a quarter of everything, uh, all the oil America produced domestically. So Alaska really made a big difference for the country, right? Uh, reducing the amount of money that America had to spend to import oil, um, you know, this kind of strategic petroleum province. We're in a very different position today, right? Alaska is, um, you know, maybe we're still top 10, but eighth, ninth top petroleum producer, um, quite small. You know, the Willow Project has gotten a lot of attention, but it's 
not it, it might be the largest oil and gas project on public lands in the United States, but what we're talking about with that project is an additional 200,000 barrels per day. That is a pittance compared to what's flowing out of West Texas. So arguably on kind of the oil and gas front, Alaska is less relevant to the United States than it has been for a long time. And yet, and yet, Alaska is home to all of these vital rare earth minerals, right? Um, we have, you know, you hear lots of uh, lots of conversations about things like the the pebble, uh, the pebble project, which is uh, gold and copper, but also the Ambler development, right? This is up in the Brooks Range, and and the decision to build the Ambler Road or the attempts to build the Ambler Road to get out these critical minerals, uh, and certainly this is central to the Biden administration's push for electric vehicles and electrification and decarbonization, um, and so Alaska, I would say, is on the the precipice of this transformation, and it's really unclear what it's going to look like, um, but there's no doubt that Alaska is going to be more relevant for the United States in the future, but not because of oil and gas, right? Because of these other resources, because of these other minerals. Um, and it's, you know, it'd be interesting to compare that to other countries, um, maybe, maybe like Norway or Sweden. I mean, obviously Sweden has long been a mining powerhouse, um, but, but Norway is perhaps an instructive example as they, you know, uh, with the war in Ukraine, you know, Norway has uh, really tried to, Norway is now the number one producer of gas to Europe, right? So Norway is sustaining Europe. And yet at the same time, they are moving full speed ahead with their, with their energy transition, right? Something like 85% of new cars now sold in Norway uh, are electric vehicles. And they're, um, you know, they have these green bids on construction projects. And so now the, the giant excavators are electric in Norway. Um, and so it's really fascinating to think about these different parts of the Arctic. And, uh, you know, I'm most interested in these kind of energy and environmental issues um, and that often there's there's so much tension and kind of paradox and, and contradiction between moving forward with green energy development and fossil fuel development. Um, but maybe kind of one last thing that I'll, that I'll say here about Alaska, and this goes to our state politics, is that Alaska actually for the past uh, decade has actually been quite bullish on renewable energy um, development, but it is not seen in the context of climate change. Uh, renewables are not getting built in Alaska uh, or historically have not because people are concerned about climate change, even though Alaska is on the front lines of, of the climate crisis, but it's being built because of concerns about fossil fuel prices and fossil fuel volatility, right? Um, and so the politics of how decarbonization happens is really fascinating. Um, and I think that uh, as we're looking at the circumpolar north, um, what we're really seeing here are, are kind of multiple Arctics emerging. Um, two, maybe three Arctics, where you just have uh, very different politics on the ground. Uh, with these, uh, with oil and gas development, with uh, with critical mineral development, uh, and with keeping oil and gas in the ground, right? Uh, you know, very a very contentious issue, um, but that it's always uh, instructive to have this comparative lens because uh, there might be two or three different kind of arctics in these buckets. But um, as we all know, you know, we live in a, in a uh, still a globalized society, very much interconnected, uh, and the economics of these uh, these endeavors cannot be uh, put into into isolated buckets. So there's there's much to learn from um, comparing Alaska to Norway and um, the many other Arctic states. And it gives us an excuse to perhaps to talk again, uh, Phil. It's been great, really, really informative uh, speaking with you here on the podcast. And uh, we'd love to have you back to talk about maybe some of these more comparisons and, you know, drill down even deeper into some of these these uh, areas of your expertise. Uh, we talked a lot about pipelines, but I think there was even more <laughs> pipelines we could have talked about, about uh, Trans-Alaska Pipeline System and Keystone XL and so forth. Perhaps we'll save that for a future episode of this podcast because, uh, like I said, we'd love to have you back on uh, Philip White, Assistant Professor of History in Arctic and Northern Studies at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Thanks again, Phil, for joining us here tonight. My pleasure, Eric. Thanks for having me.